Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes. And I'm Momentum. And we are 32-year Wall Street veterans who have had to take on secret identities and go underground in order to provide you with a handful of stocks we screen for here in the shop each week. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news. But our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air, so we've disguised our voices, and they'll never know. This week, it's May uh, approximately 10th, let's say, uh, 2013. We've done a... uh, sort of a good balance sheet at a good price screen we want to tell you about in a little while. But first, some important caveats. First, this show's for entertainment purposes only. It's not a guarantee. Secondly, Mo and I are professional analysts and portfolio managers during the week. Uh, But here on the show, um, it's after hours and such, so while we do a lot of careful due diligence uh, for our paying customers here, we've been careful to do as little work as possible. Third, our lawyers tell us to remind you that we may not have your best interests in mind, so please do your own work and all that. And then finally, it's pretty true this week, Mo. Uh, we have been drinking. We've been drinking a little bit. So uh, anyway, see all our caveats, disclosures, photographs our parents took when we were little at www.thevalueguys.com. So, we've got four outstanding stocks, value stocks, that came through the screen this week. Um, But before we get to that, uh, we'd like to do a little section of the show. We do value guys, we call, I should say, value guys, Wall Street News, featuring Mo Mentum. Mo, again, welcome back. Good to have you back. Big big week in the market this week, right? Uh, New highs. I don't know, was it? Basically broke through the old uh, the the dot com high and the financial reco- recovery from the financial yeah. crisis high. So I yeah, saw some about that. So we break through that, <clears throat> and you know the the mo guys like that. So we think uh, we think we're going to have a pretty good uh, rest of the year. Um, you guys have got a, a wealth management business that you've started. Well, that was a secret until this moment, Mo. Well, what, what, listen, what, you need material, right? What, it's what, like, what, hey, what, is that Wall Street News? Division. We haven't it, even done the announcement. I know, but I was just what now, now the value guys is doing breaking news. I was just talking to uh, one of your... Well, so that's true. Anyway, I will confirm that. Here on the show, a value guys exclusive, there is a new business at our firm, yes. And that means that I can resume my role once again as your man inside the 1%. <laughs> where, I re- where I report on the lifestyles of the rich and famous well, you of were, the 1%. Frankly, and so our latest client, interesting. You know, you learn you learn interesting things from people that are worth well, you almost You were in from a, the beginning, Mo, and so uh, I'm excited to get back to this segment. We have a lot of listeners who, you know, want to get behind the scenes. So. Well, you know, so we've got a, a, one of our new clients. I just met with him. He has no a yacht. One. They all have yachts. This is the first time I've seen this, a gimbaled swimming pool on the back of the yacht. Now, this is not quite Olympic size, but that what means... What does that it, even mean, It Mo? means that when the boat, I mean the ship... Is in Ships, rough waters. Sorry. You can get in trouble if you don't say ship on right. these things, right? Yeah. The pool water stays perfectly flat because the whole pool is gimbled. Exactly. Gimbled. Wow. Exactly. And, I have no idea. And on weekends, the pool is drained. And it becomes a giant disco floor because it's clear acrylic, and people 
swim and play on the top of it, and then there's a dance hall underneath it. Is it's there like a way in from the job? bottom? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And you're now, so you're getting, you're hanging so out. So you learn, you, you learn interesting things about what these people, you know, use their wealth for. What have you have? Do you have some tidbits from? Uh, well, from you know, I, I asked one of the one of the clients, and you know, there are these are smart people. He said there are two. I thought this was very profound. He said there are two paths to happiness in life. And I said, what two? And he said, stupidity and exceptional wealth. (laughs) (laughs) So there's your words of wisdom from the... That's so true, isn't it? From the top Uh, 1%. Anyway, moving on. Bob, thanks for the letter. Bob wanted to know if we built a, a taller... Wall um, on the border. Bob, um, one of our readers <laughs> and listeners. Are you reading email? Now? I'm just oh, reading I didn't his know email. You were doing that. No, okay. This was interesting because I didn't know what the answer was. He said, "If we built a taller wall between ourselves and Mexico on the border, taller, wouldn't taller, nat- sure, wouldn't yeah. natural selection give us larger and stronger workers?" Uh, I mean, history says it would. Right? Well, interesting. So, yeah. why? how long will that take, though? So, a billion years but from wouldn't now, that humans will just step over the wall because of selective breeding. To get it might through. simply be selective accomplishment at the, in the uh, near term, but it's a thought. I, it could happen. So, uh, is there but, a way to play that in the market? I mean, the idea is that you want a real government incentive to build a taller wall, and then would buy all the contractors that are supplying the incremental. How tall of a wall can one build? Uh, before it, you know, is impractical. <laughs> hundreds hundreds of, of feet. Hundreds sure. of feet, I yeah. don't know. Anyway. Uh, um, you know, last, if you can, okay. I do have a tidbit for you. If you can see a Padre game, I mean, maybe you could cut that into the, somehow, and, you know, sell seats or something. So here's a rumor on the street. You want uh, all the salesmen that are talking to uh, SAC Capital, as you know, under investigation, serious big-time allegations of uh, inside Oh, how in the world would I know that? They I know are, nothing about that. They are falling like... No comment. Uh-huh. Yeah, falling like flies. Anyway, the latest the latest buzz on the street is that when you go there, you get the bro hug, and it's not because they love you, man. It's because they want, putting, to, they want to see if you're wired. Or they're putting one on you. Yeah, maybe. Hey, welcome in. Hey, it's yeah. like, hey, what's that sticky thing on my back? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's going to unfold, of course. We'll see what happens. Uh, is that uh, is that all the news? you got to have some more news. Oh, there's not much. Go- I saw your IT guy the other day. This, guy, this guy's a riot. Every time I see him, I say, hey, uh, Terrence, I just, uh, I just drank a venti Starbucks, which means I successfully installed Java. <laughs> he hates me. Terrence? Our, our IT guy. Okay. I- um, so... Let's let's get going on. This. Okay. Well, I, I mean, gonna... <clears throat> you know, Mo, it's uh, it's good to uh, dig into some of these stocks. I'm sure our listeners are excited about that. I uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, we have you know we have started this new business. I mean, just sometimes listeners like a little insight on what's going on in the firm. And you mentioned something. We're starting a business. It's exciting. The thing is, when you have a traditional money manager, and you're you know you're managing a uh, Whatever it is, a sector fund, a strategy, uh, we do small cap value, what have you. As a good fiduciary, you can't ask for any high net worth individual's entire portfolio because they sh- your thing should just be a slice, whether you're REITs or bonds or whatever. So you need someone who's going to really oversee that whole package of assets and properly allocate it according to that individual's needs 
and that's kind of become wealth management. So that's what we call that. It can also be attached to a family office or what have you. And it, you know, it what it basically does is uh, it allows you to, you know, as a business, seek all of that client's assets and invest it in a way that's appropriate for that client. And you know, when you do a like what we do, small cap value. We do institutional, so they already are splitting the pie somewhere else, but it's something that is, uh, you know, really needed by as the baby boomers retire and all that. So, yeah, we've started a little division. You were there at the beginning and, of course, have an invitation to come back anytime. Let me just make that clear here on the show. And it's always interesting to watch the characters that... well, sort of yeah, populate yeah. that that top one percent. Um, so we'll but have I just more I wanted to give a little. So that's going on. You talked about that. But over on the money management side, we do this little small cap thing, and we have a thing that happens every quarter. Nobody likes it. I mean, what's funny, Mo, is we were just earlier talking about our sell side career, and you showed me your publication list. And every two days, you have a major publication going out to you know a thousand institutional investors. And I had that same position at my firm in those days. Ah, those were the days. Yeah, I mean, it was you were running hard, you know. And now, here's our publishing schedule. We've got to get something out quarterly. Okay, again. Uh, you know, 20-page piece evaluating the valuation metrics of an entire industry every two to ten days, old times. Now, a piece once a quarter. I'm, my point is... Kinder, gentler. Yeah, and yet every quarter in the office, for whatever reason, I always try to promise our constituents we're going to have it on time, we're going to beat those benchmarks of people getting letters out, and every quarter we don't get it out on time. And so it's, again, you know, we've been very late this quarter. I think it was going out today. That's my hope. But uh, anyway, it's a little behind the scenes in the money management business. Um, Okay, well, let's get into our our stocks, our screens, etc. Mo and I are uh, kicked back, drinking a little more than usual this week. Uh, But I, I ran a screen... It's a value screen. Let me tell you what it is, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you that care about this sort of stuff. We're looking for companies. We've got four pretty good value ideas this week. We're looking for companies that uh, are bigger than $1 billion in market value. That means the number of shares times the stock price. That's the market value. They may have debt, so don't confuse this with enterprise value, which would you would add that in to get the entire value of the entity if you wanted to own all the cash flows. Here you'll just own the equity, which means you still might have to pay someone interest, which at these rates, frankly, that's fine with me. But that's going to be bigger than a billion. Uh, And then interest coverage. So, you know, leverage is okay, but you don't want to have any issues. Four times or better. Uh, They have a dividend. I didn't screen on the, you know, the yield, but they at least are paying a dividend. They're in the habit of paying a dividend. Um, price to book value uh, lower than their industry median. So it's kind of a vagueish, you know, on the good half of valuation from a book value basis in their in- industry. Less than 10 times cash flow. We think this is probably just net income plus depreciation, which would, for operating cash flow, there's a bunch of stuff you would subtract. Uh, investments in working capital and things like that. But here, we our guess is it's just that sort of gross cash flow, 10 times or less. And then price to sales, 
Um, so price in the marketplace divided by sales per share, in effect, of one or less. <clears throat> Which, if someone's doing a 20% operating margin, would in effect mean five times operating income. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a vague but good valuation metric. One of the reasons I like it is you don't screen out companies that aren't making money because um, they have the potential to have good money, uh, good margins, and, and so you know that might be next year but at least you're getting you're not excluding them because they're unprofitable in this year so we got 46 companies that came through that mo and i looked through each and every one approximately (laughs) and we came up with uh we boiled that all down to four before we before we even start i got a question for you on the uh on the uh, screen we used um, said, I know that the price to cash flow is less than 10% for every company. Ten times. Ten times. Ten, right, times. Sorry. Ten times. Or ten. cash flow over price greater right. than 10%. Right. You, know, you can look at it either But way. a ten multiple. Yes. Um, so I'm familiar with that from a whole different perspective. But give me what you think would be, just looking at general stocks in this market, what would be a rich price to cash flow multiple? <clears throat> I mean, are they at the high end? Are they in the middle? Would you consider it a low valuation? There are ten. Say this company's at ten. Well, here's why times, I use here's why uh, I use ten mo. Throughout my career, which is now long. a long time, thirty <laughs> long. something years, um, ten has always kind of been a good number just to get a company that's kind of making good money and all that. Now, what's interesting during these times is, again, throughout you know my career and even earlier, I mean. The idea that you can take the uh, long-term bond interest rate, so that, you know, you, the, I don't want to get technical, but the duration of the stock market <clears throat> is probably around, the formula is 1 plus R over R, so let's, I don't know, I'm just trying to run the numbers here. It might be 8, okay? That's very rough. So you want to compare it to the bond of the same level, which in this case is probably the 10-year. So there's times when the 20-year might be better or what have you, but right now the 10-year is probably the one to look at. And that bond yield is 2.5%. If you do the inverse of 2.5, so 1 over 2.5 is 40, or 1 over 2.5% is 40, which then that might be a fair value for a multiple on the stock market, on earnings, because that's an equivalent yield. If you get all the cash from the company you own and you're getting 2.5% on the price you paid, or you go in a bond and you're getting 2.5% on the price you paid, that's some kind of equal. I mean, you got to adjust for risk and security and growth and all that. But in a low-growth environment, what's contrary to your natural instinct is that because there's hardly any growth, uh, and because interest rates are slow as a re- so low as a result, multiples on existing earnings streams can be very high. So what's happening is, I could argue the multiple should be 40 on almost any high-quality equity. And that's so, uh, at, you know, at a 10 times cash flow, Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. it's so cheap. It could be In enough. this environment, this bond environment. Fair enough. And just give me just a you know is it really forty? Would is that where you think it was not an outrageous? If you saw forty multiple of cash flow, you wouldn't be frightened away from looking at this. Well, no, of course I would. In some sense, forty in in effect, if I'm looking at equivalent, forty is what you'll pay for the government ten year with no growth, 
but a pretty high confidence you're going to get your capital at the end, right? A stock, uh, you're probably going to get some growth. You don't have the security you're going to get your capital at the end the way you do with the government unless it's uh, Procter & Gamble or Microsoft or Apple. or you know, I'm going to argue that in some sense with the government at AA, the chances that Microsoft or Apple are going to outlive the U.S. government, I mean, not that, you know what I mean? It's like those are secure too. If there's no Apple or no Microsoft, you know, you got more worries than, you know, the government not paying you back. So I would never pay the same rate, but I'm just saying if you're willing to take a 40 times your coupon on a government security, and that's net, you might be willing to say 10 times cash flow is at least a reasonable valuation to own a business. So that's a long answer because, you know, we've been heavily drinking, but that's kind of the core of why... Equities are so attractive right now in, in some people's view. And presumably you're using price to sales as a same indicator, but you're just coming at the income statement balance sheet <clears throat> from a different perspective. Well, price sales is an interesting metric. First, you should probably use enterprise value. I did price this time just right. because it was on a button, honestly. But the thing about sales is, you know, you just you just say a, a, a decent company ought to be earning between a 10 and 20% margin. So uh, if you buy something at one-time sales, you're paying between 5 and 10 times operating income if you have a margin that could be between, you know, 10 and 20%, just the math of it. And the benefit is you're not excluding companies that, for whatever reason, right now don't have earnings. Sometimes just a write-off of assets kicks companies off those kinds of screens and all of a sudden if you put a screen as a PE or uh, even a cash flow sometimes if somebody writes something off at a loss or disposes of inventory you know there's there's reasons why you want to at least include some companies just on a sales basis because they have the potential to generate a lot of cash flow at a decent margin so that's why to have that one in there but uh, anyway, the four names this week, uh, and if you've been getting bored, hopefully you just skip ahead to this part. Cash America, ticker CSH, DeVry, DV, FedEx, FDX, and we got in a uh, drive-by Glatfelter, GLT. These are all uh, companies that made it through this screen that amazingly only 46 companies uh, got through. So I'm going to go alphabetical. I'm going to launch into this mo Cash America, ticker C as SH. Uh, so it, it got through the screen, which is primarily it's cheap for its industry, less than 10 times cash flow, less than one time sales, good balance sheet. Okay, then you get into this a little bit. It's six times EBITDA. To me, that's a 16% cash on cash return. They've got an EBITDA margin that is in the upper teens, which always suggests to me that there's something proprietary going on, because otherwise, who's going to let a company earn that kind of margin? You'd rather do it yourself. So they're doing something. And they, uh, their ROA isn't great. It's upper single digits, but the ROE is consistently in the teens. And right now, it's at the low end of its historical valuation. And uh, sales are you know, kind of ticking up. They seem to be participating in the recovery. And so... Uh, you know, in the last, I guess, looks like six months, estimates have been coming down. The stock's taken a dip down as a result. And so it looks like a pretty good entry point for a company that, you know, they do uh, uh, Cash America. Basically, the thesis is, and I should have started with that, these guys help the unbanked, if you will, 
uh, handle their financial affairs. To the extent that instead of using a bank to store your securities in, you're using a, uh, a pawn shop to store your valuables in that you kind of use it to get loans and things, or you have a place where your garage stuff is liquid, uh, these guys are gaining share, their sales look good, they've, they've been on a growth uh, path, and it looks like a cheap spot to get in, and so uh, Cash America. I you know, like I, love, I love the way the uh, lawyers write the company descriptions. As you said, these guys do what, what's called in the industry Porn or pawn, <laughs> not porn. Pawn. <laughs> That's a, probably more profitable. Like I said, pawn shop, pawn. 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 And they pawn are uh, they're described as secure, non-recourse consumer loans. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, you would you would think, oh, this is sort of a shady business. But the thing is, no, I don't. For a while, yeah. and they've been they've been in operating in operation since '83. Uh, and uh, the other thing is, look at the uh, if you look at the chart on this. Um, you just basically take a line, draw right through the company, straight ahead, and uh, it should be bouncing on some resistance that's been developing since 2008. So this is also a company that made it through the screen because there's a dividend. So every one of these yeah. companies we talk about is going to have a dividend. This is only 0.3%, so it's not material. But it gives me an opportunity to engage you in our, our usual. It tells you they want to pay a dividend That someday. does, and uh, now I, I, I'm going to call on you. Really? What are we going to do? <coughs> this is the part of the show where we predict future dividends. Predict the dividend? I think that used to have a different name. It did, but it didn't sound... What was it? What did it used to be? I don't remember. Guess the dividend. Uh, that's what it was. But, of course, that's... We, we don't guess. It's this analytical. It's a lot of series. So I'm going to give you a series of dividends, and I'm okay. going to give you their dates, and you're going to process them. Now, you have a tendency to round on these, to guess the dividend. Uh, no rounding. Okay. You're going to give the actual number without rounding. Okay. I'd like to see that, my going friend. Going back to 2007. Okay. All right. And this is Cash America, the annual dividend, just to be clear about what we're okay. going to talk about. First okay. First dividend. Yeah. 14 cents. 14 cents. Check. Second dividend. Yep. 14 cents. 14. Let me just... Okay. Oh, I got that. that. Right after the financial crisis, the next dividend... 14 cents. 14, okay. So the next dividend. Got it. 14 cents. 14. The next check. Next dividend. I am seeing a pattern, I just want to say. Okay, well, ahead. give it a more data okay. points. Okay. All right. Uh, the next dividend, 14 cents. 14, okay. And they have, uh, there's another dividend. Okay, my antenna's up right now. This yep. annual dividend. All right. 14 cents. 14, yep. And we have okay. a very preliminary information. Oh, my. Yeah. For uh, this year's dividend? Yeah. 14 cents. 14. 14. Well, that, you know what? That's a lot of data points. So the That's thing is, without okay. the benefit of, of really being able to... Well, I don't have any of my have, modeling software here. Or, or any of your juniors. I can't even believe you're springing this on me because we're in your home. And of course I don't. I'm not even at my desk. How can I possibly... But you know what? I'm going to give it a try. It's like throwing Houdini off the side of the boat in chains. You know you're going to utility be able to, belt or anything. You'll be able to do it. All right. So I just want to review. So it's 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, and then in the final year, 14. 14. Okay. 14. So the trick is to forecast the 2013 full-year dividend. All right, let me just take a moment here. I'm going to look at a lot of things. The primary input to my analysis is the 
dividend payout ratio because, of course, the first thing to do is can they pay a dividend? Can they maintain even are the they current bar- dividend? Are they borrowing to pay the are dividend? They borrowing? Yeah. Are they borrowing? Are they earning it? Should they pay the bondholder? What have you? Well, this company has so little debt. I mean, I shouldn't say that at all. It's 36% debt to capital. Um, okay. Uh, and their earnings the last few years have gone uh, 317, 367, 425, 342. Ah, that 2012, the downtick. The estimate for this year is 481, so a recovery dividend uh, for that year, I think you had at. Uh, 14. So I'm going to, I think for, all right, I'm ready to give my forecast for next year. Okay. 16, Mo. 16. And you know why I say that? I think they're going to have a powerful year. They're going to say, hey guys, did anyone notice that we've just been paying 14 for a a decade? (laughs) And then everyone's going to say, yeah. Well, why don't we? And they're going to all feel good about the earnings changes that they're seeing because I, I see they've just expanded a little bit. They've added a lot of stores, which is going okay. to add earnings. If, if now that you've made that, now that and you I made think that, they're going to want to send a message, Mo. Open up your uh, all right. my HP twelve C. Okay, absolutely. Because I want to ask you a question now that you know well, that okay. it's now that you know what the dividend is going to be. Next year, 16. And that's a decline in the payout ratio, by the way. Fair that's enough. part of the confidence I have in this forecast Fair is enough. that that by going to 16, they're actually improving, lowering from a balance sheet point of view, the okay. payout ratio. So now we know that. Here's what else we know. We know that this stock is historically traded for years at 0.3 or 0.4% yield. So yes. now that we know the dividend, okay. ah, and we I know where, where it's going. historically let's predict tra- the stock price. Let's predict the stock price. All right. Which is way well, this more can be your thing. This, is, this okay. is $45 stock All right, right now. Let me try to click that. All right. So we're going to take 0.16 and then divide that by the uh, yield that we exactly. expect. So you're going to predict the yield. And that will, that will exactly. just. Mo, I, I mean, I, I can't believe you've been keeping this formula to yourself. So, this is this is great. All right, so I've got it. In, I've got it punched in. Okay, sixteen so, cents. Now, are, what are you going to tell me? The yield, or how does it work? Point three percent yield. Point three percent yield. And what does that give me as a stock price? Fifty three and one third. So fifty three dollars on a forty five dollar stock. And what I, is that as our percentage gain? All right, let's check the let's check the improvement. The, uh, that's an eighteen and a half percent return, Mo. There you go. Now let's backward. So fourteen cents going to sixteen cents. The dividend increase mm-hmm. that we again breaking news on the value guys stock talk show. Uh, that increment. I know there's a button here for uh, increments. Yeah. The increment button. Well, here, let me turn it this way. When it's on my phone. All right. Change in percent. That's a 14% increase increase in the dividend. We're forecasting a... uh, 18%. So, you know, we're actually also forecasting a multiple. Yeah, Yeah, a little expansion. Wow. All right. Let's... uh, I, I'm tired after that analysis. Well, we were talking last week. Do you know how Oof. many calories we burn on on doing the show? 
I can't even. I don't measure it. Well, they've done. Do you know? We've done yeah, some studies. We, remember, we did the. We were talking last week in, in your office with the guys um, about how many calories you burn when you're sorting cards, and this is a little more. Oh, just from the brain, the mental yeah. exercise. Yeah. Four thousand. I thought we may be going through four thousand calories on. I do feel like brain. I need a sandwich. Is that a, getting, is that a symptom of of and that? And it's getting that brain warm in use? here. Yeah, I think it is. Oh wow! So all right, so Cash America. Uh, we like it. It's uh, six times EBITDA. Interesting. What do you? Any final? Eighteen percent. Eighteen percent. Predicted the increase. Okay. Next up, Devry Inc. DV. Now Devry came through the screen. That's the beauty of screens. You kind of know it's uh, trading below the median price to book of its industry. It's less than ten times cash flow. It's less than one time sales. Uh, and they're a real. They are a real company. And whereas a lot of these, a lot of educational companies are virtual. <clears throat> Um, their their stuff is pr- principally online. These this are real brick and mortars university. They have real campuses. They're yeah, big in the right city right. of Chicago. They're 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 located in Downers Grove, which is a suburb of Chicago. You seem to know a lot about that. I just I read the company description. Ah, um, <laughs> let's see. Now, guess what? Now I know a lot about that. Well, the reason I mean this is interesting in part because it's a it's kind of a contrarian it's a pretty contrarian view. This whole for-profit university industry, in, in effect, came up before Congress a few years ago because in the downturn, people weren't getting jobs, they couldn't pay their student loans, and all of a sudden, you know, there's uh, subsidies to these loans by the government, so they're calling in and they're looking at, you know, default rates from students and all that, and they start to question these these kinds of companies. Now, you know, they didn't do the same inquiry for public universities, which are increasingly running into the same problems where tuition relative to starting salaries, if you just do the ratio, it's just like, can you afford a home on your income? Can you afford a university on the salary you'll make when you graduate? These are things people have to start dialing in. And so as a result, um, these companies have come under pressure. It's harder to get a loan to go. And also, you know, Mo and I have been talking about this for some time. The job market's been great. Employment's been going up. And that always has been a contrary indicator to whether people go to school. Because if they can get a job, they're less likely to go to school. It's when you can't get a job that you think about retraining. So the stock's in a downturn. It was at a high of, uh, I don't know, it looks like about $70 a share in '09. As a result of basically reductions of enrollment, uh, they're down around 30. So there has been a real pressure on enrollments. They had 19, a billion nine in sales in June 2010 fiscal year. It's a billion nine this year. It went up a little bit, down a little bit. They're flat. So there's a. The thesis is that because of the cost of education at the public universities, etc., some of these lower cost options that you know train for a trade that can earn income. Uh, are, are you know it's a return on investment based decision increasingly for college and these guys are going to be part of that long term market share of education as some sort of, sort of an annuity and then the thing that really jumps out is it's 4.6 times EBITDA which is about a 22 percent cash on cash return they have no debt they have uh, a decent return on equity good margins and. I think that it's overblown on all the negative press that's come out of, you know, the uh, the fact that there's these defaults. There were some scandals in the industry with regard to paying bonuses to salesmen that would recruit students, but 
every business does that. The rules weren't clear. So a lot of that's in the past. I think it's a kind of a bargain opportunity to get into the whole industry and just DeVry made our screen. You know, in the shop, we own a different stock. We own uh, UTI, Universal. I know we've talked about it on this show. They, they train students to be mechanics. But this is the same idea, training for a trade, 20% cash on cash return. Mode. And you know what's interesting, again, just to... to remind you that this is a company that does pay a dividend. It's a 1.2% dividend yield. And there's, you know, when when you look at a yield just the way uh, Val and I were going back and forth on using dividend yield to predict the stock price, there's a lot of different things you can do with that ratio. And uh, one of the things I do with the dividend yields is I look to see, is it growing? Because in the last case, it was consistent. But in this case, the dividend yield's gone 10%, 10 cents, 12 cents, 16, 20, 24, yeah. 30, 36. Impressive uh, record. So there's real good dividend growth. And what that means is that management is committed to grow cash flow and consistently distribute a portion of that cash flow out to their shareholders. And uh, so if you believe in the, uh, you know, in the viability of the company, and I, and I think there's those last unemployment numbers were surprising. You know, if you've gone to one of these schools, you have 3% unemployment. The rest of the, there's 27% unemployment for people 25 to 35 in the yeah. United States right now. You have a stat that if you've gone to one of these schools, it's 3%? It's people who went to college. Oh, who went to college. So this counts in that. Yep. Yeah, no, but, you know, you gotta you got to make that decision about how to spend your life. And I think increasingly, these colleges that teach a trade where you know your placement rates are high are a good option versus right. going to Boston University as a you know philosophy major and you come out and it's hard to get a job. So well, I, uh, that, that's going to the thesis for me is DeVry has an almost certain share. I don't know exactly what the share is of education spending, and that's an annuity. And so you know, right, it, give me the give me the history since you know the company a little bit, you know the industry a little bit. I'm looking at this as a newcomer, and I'm seeing in 2012 the stock just fell out of bed. It was down yeah. 38 percent. Mm. Since mm-hmm. then, there's been a big recovery. It's up 21 percent already. <clears throat> yeah. So in that, yeah, I, I know your earlier comments. You were talking about the stock being in a downward trend. But something clearly has changed. The volume of the stock in 2012 was higher than it's ever been in, in its history. Yeah. And uh, you had you looked like you had a turnover in shareholders with a large portion of shareholders who have probably bought it for one reason, exiting the company. Yeah. Being followed by a group of new shareholders who are probably buying it for a totally different reason. Well, this group looks a little bit like a value group. Uh, the new guys. The new guys, and right. so you know, I we you know we again we didn't own this one. We own uh, we own a different one, but you know this one came through the screen. The other one didn't. So actually, I'm going to talk to the analyst about that. See what's up with that. But Devry um, is a little more diversified in the educational programs that they offer. So you know, I, I can tell you the reason we bet on this other one. It may, may be a little more expensive but it's focused on an industry we have a lot of conviction in. Whereas here, it's a little more diversified, so you're going to get a little more... I mean, it's still there's a lot of confidence in these industries. You're training people to do the things that are growing in the share of GDP. Uh, and so, but, you know, we chose this other one. It's just, it's just auto. And, and, and maybe, maybe we should be considering this one, but I think the point on this is uh, they're going to have 
a share of educational budget. An educational budget has a certain share of a family income. And, and once you can get into annuities and, and not fear that you know, they're going to be obsolesced, these guys are always going to be there training people for practical jobs where they can earn money and have a home and have a car. And that's going to have value even if the public university deal with students is starting to break down in terms of the cost. DeVry and people like this, they have to always keep that in mind. You know, I mean, if you can't earn your interest payment, no one's going to go there. No one's thinking, you know, just for the good sake of being educated, you got to go to DeVry, which is how most public universities are. You have no idea in heck what you're going to do, you know, but you go just to be smart. Okay, at DeVry, that's not how it is. You have to know you're going to pay money, and when you get out, you're going to be able to Earn pay money. your bills. Right. And so I think they'll always have a place. And when the long term... People, people who go to DeVry, who go to those, they're, they're going for a very specific skill. I mean, when, yeah. when you went to college and you studied medieval literature... Well, that was I mean, in you demand could do then. That. I, was I a, don't know. Who knew? The Dungeons market. and Dragons had just been out, and I thought yeah. I could get something going. No, I just... If the long-term treasury, to bring this back, is in effect, you've got to flip it over. It's 2.5%, but that's 40 times. So if the long-term treasury is 40 times, you can certainly look at 4.5 times at DeVry. Because, again, as business owners, Mo, we can buy the treasury and earn 2.5%, or we could buy this whole company. It's a billion five. We'd have to call some friends, a lot of friends. But then we'd earn... 22% on our money here versus 25 on the Treasury, and this grows. So, again, to me, that's some kind of anchor, and then you're just into the notion of are they gaining share of the economy? So I, and, and there's no debt, so it's not like you're in any rush here. You just have to have that long-term view. And uh, that's where I come out anyway. Well, I like it too. Obviously, there's something positive going on that tells you in the last year volumes up. I don't there's know a, what that is. There's a 20% increase in the price, and you know dividends have been been clicking along at a pretty nice pace, even though sales are flat. So it looks like it's pretty safe. And uh, using our you know proprietary price uh, stock price projection. <laughs> Are you going to do that on this one? This yield is actually better than the it's yield. It's a better yield. And you yeah. can look at you know 18 well, plus percent uh, upside on that. So, yeah, I like it too. Well, one thing that's better than the other one, I mean, the, the thing that I didn't look at that you pointed out is the dividend here is just consistent. I mean, they raised the dividend Every 20% year. Yep. last year. Yep. And uh, 20% the year before. I mean, that is noteworthy for sure. So, DeVry, DB. Next one needs no introduction, as they say. No introduction. FedEx. Now, FedEx is not is 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 such a hip name that everyone from, you know, uh, uh, pop stars to uh, dancers to rappers want that as part of their uh, their nicknames or their adopted names. They do really. Sports stars. I mean, FedEx. Well, if you were FedEx, if you're if you were if your nickname was FedEx, how many FedExes are there in the uh, NBA? I Probably I have no idea. A lot. I, I think that the fact, I agree with you that FedEx somehow is cool, I will say. They got through the screen, FDX is the ticker, and they're a global logistics company. Uh, it came through the screen. It's 5.7 times EBITDA, so 
six times would be 16%. So it's 16% cash on cash. They grow. They're tied into world GDP. They grow a little faster than that because world trade is growing faster than world GDP. Question. And it's cheap. Uh, uh, well, you know, what can I tell you? Well, you know, the um, I went to uh, mail a package the other day, and I was at our post office, which is an urban post office, and I waited for about, I don't know, 20 minutes to uh, get to the front desk and mail a package. And I understand from chatting on the line that that's now the normal thing because the post office is seriously, down, down, yeah, seriously cutting down. back yep. everything. It's amazing. Yeah. And, I mean, we're not, uh, we're not Iowa. So uh, you imagine what the, the service is out there. But the bottom line is if the post office is in a death spiral, it takes them longer, up the lines get longer and longer, the service deteriorates. They just reported their uh, earnings today or yesterday, uh, uh, a loss of a billion nine. A billion. For the quarter. Oops. Two billion, yeah. So, uh, but if they're in a death spiral, do they hemorrhage some customers to FedEx or are they just very absolutely, different? Absolutely, absolutely. They yeah, do. Yeah. So in a way, it's also a sort of a, a play on what you think is the inevitable demise of the U.S. post office. Well, you know, I think they've been gaining that customer for a long time. That whole campaign, you know, if you absolutely positively have to get it there overnight. The fact that I can't even recite that. Right. They've been delivering on this promise for 30, 40 years. It's kind of like they've become, and I don't think this is just me, Mo, but it's kind of like when you turn your water faucet on, you expect water and it's there, and so you trust. It works. you got to get something somewhere, and they've built this That's enormous... Enormous, uh, you know, franchise. I'm looking at their sales here, and even in the worst years of the recession, <clears throat> or Great Recession, or whatever, I guess they were down in the main '09 year. Um, they were actually down from 37.9 to 35.5. So that's a big, that is a decent decline. Um, but the stock's cheap. They've had four years of underperforming the S and P. And when and yet when you look at their uh, return on equity, which has been in the low uh, teens, I you know I don't have the numbers here. I think that's got to be above average for the S and P. They have a lower return on assets um, because of course they have a lot of assets, but um, they make that up in a little bit of leverage to get a higher return on equity. Their margins, EBITDA margins in the in the lower to mid teens, consistent growth. For the last, you know, eight years, and that's through the recession. So that's coming through increasing volume. Their sales are up. Uh, in in the 2010 year, their sales were 34 billion. They're going to be 44 billion, growing basically a third in the last four years during what's supposedly a tumultuous time. They're delivering. It's six times EBITDA. I just uh, it's surprising. It's so cheap. The yield. There's no yield, so to your point, we do they do pay a dividend, but it's about you know it's about a stable company that uh, could be bought out at some point, but is certainly worth uh, this multiple for for the potential uh, that you get out of this one in the cash flows. Well, you know one of the one of the things that is um, surprising about this company, <clears throat> it's another thing I kind of look at every once in a while when we go over these sheets is. I asked you on the last show, what's a what what is a what is a big company? How many analysts follow a big company? Because the number of analysts is a function of how efficiently the company's story is getting out there. There are thirty-one analysts who follow FedEx. 
Yeah. Now, most of the companies we follow have three or two. Yeah. And, uh, but when you've got 31 analysts, there is something called a consensus, and you better yeah. know what it is. And you've got to know what these 31 guys are saying. And they usually sing in, <coughs> in a chorus. They're all, they're all on the same bandwagon. Yeah, and uh, what what they've been singing is down here in the EPS estimate revisions. They have been down slightly, trimming their estimates for the company, and so normally, if I see, you know, the uh, the consensus being trimmed, and there's only two analysts, it's not that important. But when 31 guys think earnings estimates are going to be pulled in. Yeah, I think I'd be very cautious at least for a while. Now, on the other hand, the stock's done well for the last two years, <clears throat> but it um, it it just worries me. I'd like to be able to see a real strong consensus that earnings are going to be up. Well, I do think if you want to talk about what could go wrong, which is a lot of times why people, some of the companies, you know, we've had a lot of companies report, and from 30,000 feet, because every company's different and all that, but, you know... If you want to start talking about what to worry about, Europe is still you know, got some problems. You got economies there with negative GDP. You got, I mean, Greece still could just go away anytime. You got Spain with, you know, what twenty something percent unemployment. <coughs> so, when I listen to conference calls during this earnings season, the what I get is, hey, everyone. You know, Europe, we don't know. It's soft. And then you got the whole inventory thing. So to the extent that European investors in warehouses, they have concerns or their own situation is under pressure, they're going to order less even if orders are okay and they're going to let their inventory stocks go down and then that affects the U.S. supply or those things. And so, uh, you know, I mean, th things are murky in Europe. That's what I'd say. And so FedEx is directly tied into that. That's my guess then, because it's only been modest. You know, we saw some other company with earnings reductions that were, this is, over the last six months, earning forecasts have come in about 5% for FedEx per share. And which, yeah. may be, which may be all um, European-based. I don't know, but I just, I, I throw that out. Um, I, I, I have obviously no idea. Um, the, the thing about a big cap company with 31 analysts is if you make a forecast that's out of line with the consensus as an earnings basis, you know, in some sense, if you want to have any conviction in that, you've got to say, what's my source? Why in the world would I think I know more about this than somebody else? And I completely agree with that. It's hard to have information beyond what the market has when there's 31 analysts. Frankly, that's why our shop, we go small for three or four analysts. But here we are recommending FedEx. Why in the world, as fiduciaries to our listeners, because we take that pretty seriously, of course, would we recommend this? Well, you can still have a valuation judgment. Yep. And there can still be some psychology in the multiple that reflects fears that are unfounded. And and I also and think that's that, where I come out on this. And one. I think when you look at this over the course of four or five years, you also realize that this is the this is the proverbial minnow that can feed on the the whale for years and years and years because the, yeah. they're they're slowly taking you know one percent market share for these guys from the U.S. Post Office is a 20% growth year in revenues. Yeah. So, and they can do that for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a good long-term story, too. Okay. 
And FedEx. Oh, I want to point. I had another. Uh, I had an interesting fact on uh, on this FedEx. Yes. Little known fact. I'm going to put this out. When you look at the list of holders of FedEx, um, there's some very storied value investors in this list, including uh, Longleaf Partners, which is of course Mason Hawkins. <clears throat> Oakmark is in there. And Oakmark. Now it says here Oakmark Equity and Income. Oakmark Equity and Income is run by uh, a gentleman who uh, I met on a couple of occasions, Clyde McGregor. He's got one of the best records in the country, humble man, and, uh, you know, hardly anyone's heard of him. And yet, he's uh, well, smart. Well, they have now. He's smart. He's in this thing. That gives me a little confidence. And Longleaf, again, storied firms in this FedEx right now. All right, last up. Well, Mo, you like this one a lot. Why don't you? Uh, well, wait? we 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 looked at this earlier in the show, and you know, one of the one of the things we do as part of the screening process is just throw a bunch of ideas out on the table. What caught my eye with this one was the fact that clearly something had big had happened in 2012. Now, remember, you've got one of these sheets in front of you. You're uh, you're just you're looking for a visual that's going to tip you off to a story, and uh, the minute I looked at the stock price, I saw a spike up in its shares. That happened between 2012 and 2013. Underneath that, I looked at the volume, and the volume, the number of people that involved in the buying and selling, was the highest it's ever been in the history on this page, which goes back to 2007. So clearly, there is a story there. So what could that be? There are only three analysts that follow this company. That's the interesting thing here. Something's going on and nobody knows about it. Well, here's what often happens. Three analysts are following it. One is following it because he was the investment banker. They took the company. (laughs) Someone's making him. Someone's (laughs) making him do it. But he's got to do his job. And he knows what's going on. And he's doing it well and we applaud him, right? Right. Don't you think? It's on autopilot. Then there's one that wants to get in the business as an investment banker, and so he's going to follow you know, whatever's good for the company. Yeah. And then there's a third that might actually do some real research. Let's hope Here's so. what often happens when you only have three, three analysts. They're on autopilot. They think, oh, earnings next year are going to grow at 12%, and they all follow the, follow the leader. Some brand-new blood comes in, takes a fresh look at this, says, hey, this doesn't make any sense. Earnings aren't going to be up. Seven percent, they're going to be up twenty percent, and just excites the sales force, gets everyone going. Tell and the story. all of a sudden, since there's only two other analysts to convince, yeah. it's easy to get everyone in the space on the bandwagon. Well, they don't want to get left behind. Over exactly, there. Yeah. and so it's much easier for one person to turn consensus when there's only three of you. Absolutely, than there is to turn great consensus insight, by the when way. there's you know yeah. twenty or thirty people out there. Yeah. So maybe, maybe. Somebody Amazing. discovered something. The three-month the estimates, the six-month estimates, the six-month estimates. Well, the sales estimates up, up a lot for yeah. this year, so yeah. I don't know. Maybe there was an acquisition. So here that's the, I, what I thought was interesting is if we looked at this purely from the perspective of detectives, we don't. Know, there yeah, was I, an event. It's we don't have to pretend up. that we don't know anything. We do know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> I don't have to pretend. I don't know. I don't know anything about this one. Um, although I did research. I did do research on this. 
in the 80s, but I'm going to guess that's a little bit no, out of No, no pretending here. Do they just... still make paper? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe not much as James. I don't know. Now, the gross margins here tell you a lot. This is an industrial, obviously, commodity in some sense, Gladfelter. I remember following these guys 20 years ago. I'm sure nothing's changed. Imagine this, ladies and gentlemen. You make paper, and you have to go out in the marketplace and call on everyone and somehow make everyone think your paper is the best freaking paper and coolest paper and oh our price is the same as everyone else and and so they used to do the oddest things like they'd get different colors they'd get different thicknesses different oh well everyone has the nine inch uh we 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 sell an eight and seven eighths. I'm not saying everyone does it. We're a little ahead of the And it's a heavier and it's a heavier stuff. A little heavier. You're gonna want that. I mean it's amazing and so, you know, as outsiders, you look at paper and you go, paper's paper, and I agree, but when you talk to salesmen at a paper company, I'm just going to say, it's hilarious, because they just... So, they, but when you do talk to insiders, does yeah. Gladfelter, are they the, oh, God, are they the they, Goldman Sachs the best. of paper? They, they are, are the best, my That's friend, and I I'm surprised you know, actually, I'm not surprised you know that. These guys, I mean, you may buy other paper, and that's fine if you're that type of person, but... If you're the other type of person, yes, Gladfelter, that's it's what for you, you want. Now, these, so whenever you see the thing that says specialty papers yes. and fiber-based engineered materials, which just means probably, I'm going to guess, because who knows, fancy filter paper. So, like medical facilities, you don't want germs getting in there. You use filters, and that's based on paper. But no, they probably make the finest papers for the finest catalogs for the yeah. for the best paper at the most valuable companies. Now wait a minute, they also make paper cups. Well, paper cups. I mean, again, this is a lot. I bet they own a few brands in paper. They have science in paper, and the thing is, you need volume to get your costs down. So look at their gross margin. 12%, 13%. Now here, I've talked about this before, but some people might go, well, my goodness, the gross margin's terrible. How could you buy a company like that? Well, I'm going to flip it around and say, you'd be insane to try to compete with a company like this who's earning a 12% gross margin. And as soon as no one in the world can compete because your prices are so low and your costs are so low, you have a monopoly in some way. Uh, but... The, the damper on it is they earn a low teens return on equity. They use leverage uh, quite a bit, actually. Yeah. But their sales are real stable because, again, tied into GDP and packaging and all that. And right you now, just like the other companies, eight times EBITDA, that's 12.5% cash on cash. I'm drawn to things right now that you can make a pretty common sense argument or annuities. So paper cups... Here's my research. Do people like paper cups? Yes. No, and, and you said it is. It's the the sales are not outstanding because they're tied into the economy. But also, just to put a number on that, over you know their five year compounded annual growth rate of sales, you know it's been six and a half percent. So that's that's really not bad at all when you look at it over that period of time. And uh, you know if we're truly in a in a more recovery mode, you could probably exceed that going forward. So there's a lot of ways to look at this, do a little bit of a forecast, and, and sort of suspect, yeah, you, there's still some additional upside in the stock. Well, here's another element to this, because and this is a more of a macro concern. 
you see the Federal Reserve pumping money into the economy. They're spending $85 billion a month. They have a printing press. It prints money, or they send a fax that tells you that the Fed is sponsoring your capital. And in effect, they pump $85 billion a month into the economy that's buying stocks. So there's some concern that over time there's going to be a resurgence of inflation. People think inflation's bad. A little inflation unless is good. You own, unless you own a house. Well, <laughs> I mean, obviously, it, uh, if you have fixed assets, it's bad. But I, I think it's undeniable that one way to deflate the debt of the United States government and to make it more manageable is that strategically you deflate that so that it's a lower piece of GDP. And I think that would be my assumption that no one's talking about it, but that's what they'll do. Inflation means prices are going up on something. And with a company like Gladfelter, the only place you have any chance for getting inflation protection, in effect, is companies that can raise their price. Inflation is the average of all the prices going up. So some are going up above inflation, some are going below. And as a result, choose the companies that can increase their prices faster than the average. And now inflation is, you're sad that it's going on, but it's helping you, okay? And Gladfelter, they sell stuff that compared to what they're helping is a small price. So paper cups, uh, preventing disease from transferring between people in a hospital and in your house or in your office, if it goes up 12%, you don't even notice it. If filters in a medical facility, you don't notice it. Find stationery that's trying to win that big client at, at Boeing, you don't care, you're going to pay. So to me, Gladfelter, and I remember this, is one of those companies that gets price. And so, and the other benefit to them is because we're in America, all this fracking, energy prices going down, we've talked a lot about that on the show. Energy could be is a, a stimulus. Well, it's a huge input into their cost structure. When you make paper, you've got to heat billions of gallons to billions of degrees. And so, when natural gas and coal and all these things are down low, you have a chance to see some margin expansion here. And actually, um, you know, it looks like eight years ago they were in the teens. They came down, they're on the move back up. So you, you could get some margin expansion here, too, on Gladfelter. And uh, so could be an inflation hedge, I guess, was my point on all that. Yeah, so it's an interesting detective story. I don't know that we solved anything, but uh, it's a it's an interesting company. You know, they're uh, I think they're about 120 years old. They were founded in 1864, and I just looked, and it was actually founded by Philip Glatfelter, and there are no Glatfelters left at the company, so too bad. But at any rate, where do you think all the Glatfelters went? Sounds like a song. One of those '60s folk songs. Uh, I just wonder where all the where Glad have Felders all go. the Gladfelders you know, gone? I don't know. Uh, well, where did anyway. Mr. Roebuck go? That's a whole show. We <laughs> we've talked about that for thirty years, Mo. That was uh, when we first started drinking, even before podcasting. One of the one Mr. of the real was the questions song. that keep us up all right time. so that is uh that's all four stocks the musings of uh, the value guys and i got a question for um, you are we does that mean we're almost on the hour wow we've burned through an entire hour we haven't even gotten to walking we'll through economic trends, trends and we're not going to be able to because the show's got so, to be this long that brings us to that brings us well, to the end well what about a favorite stock oh uh, what's your favorite stock uh you know 
Of these four, we talked about FedEx, DeVry, Gladfelter, and uh, Cash America. The one I have the most conviction about at this valuation is DeVry, DV. Oh, okay, and using our using our uh, uh, price based off of yield formula, and looking at the fact that there's when I see eighteen percent upside based on what we uh, were forecasting for Cash America. Remember when we looked at yeah. their dividend and used the their yield, yield to forecast their stock price? We came up with eighteen percent. You know, the great thing about those analyses is you can be pretty wrong and still walk away from the trade looking okay. Yeah, good point. So if we're not, you know, even if we're more just directionally correct than anything else, it looks like this stock has a good chance to outperform the market. So I'm going to go with Cash America International and uh, let the world know that that's the name. Well, thanks everyone for listening in. This has been another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show. See all our caveats, disclosures, links to five or six years of past shows indexed by tickers. And I'm sure you have something better to do. But anyway, that's out there at www.thevalueguys.com. So long, everybody. And see you next week.